You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Coming up next on SpyCast. I was there between 2001 and 2006, but I'll tell you something. In Israel, once you serve in this position, that's how you are going to remember for the rest of your life. I did all kinds of things <laughs> since then. But whenever I appear on television or uh, on the radio, or, uh, when I'm interviewed, they always refer to me, the former head of the research and analysis division. <laughs> Yossi Cooper Vassar was formerly the head of the research division of the Israeli Defense Force, or IDF, as well as the Director General of the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. He was an infantryman, an artillery officer, and then a career intelligence officer who rose to become a brigadier general. His service included the Yom Kippur War and the First Lebanon War, and his roles included intelligence attaché in Washington, D.C., an intelligence officer for Central Command. He has an M.A. in economics and a B.A. in Arabic language and literature. In the rest of this episode, Yossi and I discuss... What overseeing Israeli intelligence analysis entails? Being a spectator to history on the White House lawn in 1993? Warning US intelligence about the lack of weapons of mass destruction before the 2003 invasion of Iraq? Trust, or the lack of it, between intelligence agencies and international relations and assisting Colombian intelligence agencies with their insurgency. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and loved ones please also consider leaving us a five-star review. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006. We are imitated, but never intimidated. We stand strong, and we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, it's a pleasure to speak to you this morning, Yossi. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. You've got a very rich career, but could we just start off with one of your most recent appointments? So, head of the research division at the Israeli Defence Forces. So, could you tell us a little bit more about that role there? Because it sounds really fascinating. Yeah, well, this is the role that is in charge of uh, developing the intelligence picture in Israel uh, on all levels, from uh, from early warning for a terror attack to uh, pointing at uh, operational developments, uh, new weapons coming in, 
warning about the Iranian nuclear project, one of the things that I did uh, when I was in office, and uh, warning about a war and portraying the situation, uh, the political situation in the region and uh, worldwide. All of that is being done uh, under the supervision and the responsibility of the, of the head of the research division. And I would say it's a very demanding job. Yes. <laughs> Pretty demanding. It certainly, <laughs> it certainly sounds demanding. So with the term research division, we're talking about analysis and appraisal of the strategic situation and appraisal of developing threats, warnings. We're not talking about R&D. We're not talking about investing and developing new technology and so forth. Is that correct? Well, we did have a branch that also deal, dealt with developing uh, new technologies and updating the technologies we use to the uh, developments of technologies. I can tell you that when I was in office, we developed the new techniques of uh, disseminating information through something that later developed into digital uh, news. We were there for the rest of the media. So that they, uh, and this was, of course, uh, well protected from uh, anybody that would like to see what we were, what we were doing. And this was a way that we were communicating with the most of our uh, consumers, including the prime minister and others. So we did have a small branch dealing with technologies. And uh, it was the days of uh, the beginning of what we call today the data revolution. We were there uh, witnessing the, the beginning of this revolution. Today, the situation is much, much more challenging, I would say, than what it was then. But most of the activity is analysis on all levels, as I said before, and also uh, preparing the uh, targets for uh, the army headquarters level that needs to be uh, dealt with. Because uh, in Israel, the, the Air Force is operated from, from the headquarters. So they have to get their, most of their targets from the intelligence on the headquarters level. And so that's another task of the, of the division. Wow. And what years were you there as the head of the research division? I was there between 2001 and 2006. But I'll tell you something. In Israel, once you serve in this position, that's how you are going to remember for the rest of your life. I did all kinds of things <laughs> since then. But whenever I appear on television or on the radio, <laughs> when I'm interviewed, they always refer to me, the former head of the research and analysis division. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be on your gravestone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those are very interesting years, 2001 to 2006. So just thinking at the local and regional level, we've got the uh, second intifada, which breaks out in 2000 to 2005. And then internationally, we've obviously got the 9-11 attacks, and then we have the war on terror in Afghanistan and Iraq. So um, it sounds like some very challenging and interesting years that you were the head of the research division. Many other challenges. It's, uh, hectic years, very full of action. Yeah, wow. So most of our listeners will obviously never be the head of the research division for Israeli military intelligence. So help us understand how you approach this job. Like, do you, is it a very reactive thing? You turn up at your desk and then it's, this has happened and that has happened and you, you have to just deal with the priorities or do you say, okay, there's a certain period of time that we're going to focus on the 
regional situation and the international situation is going to be secondary for the time being or just there's so many different parts of the job that you outlined how do you deal with the demands of the breadth of the portfolio so let me tell you when i came in and later on when the director of military intelligence changed as well uh, we conducted strategic process so almost everybody went as uh, an office like that to, to better fine-tune the activities of the, of the division to the changing situation and changing demands and changing enemies and changing technologies and everything is changing all the time. That's, that's the problem of intelligence. It's an ongoing learning process. You don't learn all the time to enable you to adjust to the developing situation you are, you are going to fail. And so what, what I did at the time what was the idea that I was trying to lead to make the intelligence analysis in each arena pinnacle upon around which the entire activity is conducted, the activity of the intelligence is conducted. So that each arena's head would be the head of, you know, director of military intelligence in his area. So that he will give, be given some sort of a budget that will determine what kind of collection efforts will be done in his domain, and that he would be able to uh, prioritize the different challenges that he's facing in his arena. And uh, this, uh, this was a big idea of change uh, for what can we do, because one of the logic was that because of the new technologies and the new data capabilities, it was possible for uh, the people from the research division to be in touch with the people in the different collection divisions, collection units, and uh, get information in, in its raw uh, phase, more, more or less on real time, and develop a picture that takes into account all the different sources that uh, are available close to real time. And uh, this was the logic that uh, we were trying to uh, form which was uh, going to affect also the preparation of the, of the division to help. Help us understand the layout of Israeli intelligence, just for our listeners that don't know much about it. So AMAN is an acronym for uh, the Israeli military intelligence, and then we have Shin Bet, which is not exclusively, but it's largely domestic, and then Mossad, which is gathering foreign intelligence. Who are some of the other actors? Uh, how many are there, and how did your job intersect with those other players? So the military intelligence actually is made of uh, more than what uh, people know. The Amman, which is the military branch in the headquarters, in the general headquarters of the military, is also the defense intelligence. We don't have a separate defense intelligence. So the defense intelligence and the military intelligence are the same organization. Uh, so we serve uh, not only the uh, military level, but also the defense level. The minister of defense and the, and the cabinet and the prime minister are all fed. Uh, they get their intelligence from the defense and military intelligence. This is Amman. Amman at the same time provides information for uh, all the units in the military that needs information, intelligence for their activity. Changes from time to time the relationship between the combat intelligence and the Amman, especially for the collection units of Amman, have to supply information to the field level and to the operational level and to the headquarters level. 
at the same time. That's, uh, that's Amman. It's a huge operation. We are in charge of the most important collection units, the signal intelligence or the uh, electronic intelligence. Uh, the visual intelligence is in, in Amman, the, which is called today ge- geographical intelligence, geoint. Geo- we have several uh, satellites, you know, to make sure that we interpret correctly their uh, products. Uh, we have a human, t- uh, intelli- uh, intelli- human intelligence organization that uh, deals with some of the collection f- coming from human sources. And we have some other units, more technological, that uh, make sure that everything works uh, on top of the headquarters that uh, collect- connects everything the military and defense intelligence. In Israel, the military and defense intelligence, unlike in many other places, is also because of of this system and because we are considered to be under continuous threat, the military and defense intelligence is also the national intelligence. We consider ourselves, it's not written anywhere, but uh, it's it's a matter of uh, tradition, uh, that the military and defense intelligence is also responsible for giving the national assessment, uh, which in the United States is usually done by today by the ODNI and uh, formerly by the CIA. In Israel, it's it's done by the by the defense and military intelligence. So the guy who's in charge of the research research analysis division is supposed to provide the, this kind of uh, national intelligence assessment to the political levels and uh, so on and so forth and to others. That's Amman. On top of that, we have Mossad, very famous, which is responsible for, uh, actually, the full name is Institute for the, for Intelligence and Special Missions. That's the, the real name of Mossad. But the, the translation of the word institute in Hebrew is Mossad. So, <laughs> so everybody <laughs> knows them by Mossad. Uh, and it's a, some people say that uh, most people who know very little Hebrew know two words, Shalom and Mossad. <laughs> uh, they are famous because of their uh, unbelievable operations. But most of these operations have to do with, not with special missions. Some of them have to do with special missions. One of the very famous special missions is to help bring Jews that are in uh, dire situations back to Israel. That's a very unique special operation that they are in charge of. But uh, for intelligence, they are responsible for collection of intelligence outside of Israel. Uh, And we have the ISA, the Israeli Security Agency, better known in Hebrew as Shabak, which is responsible for uh, foiling terror attacks inside Israel and uh, counter-espionage taking care of all kinds of other threats for coming, emanating, from, uh, emanating from inside Israel. And also protect some of our uh, assets, uh, not only for, uh, against terror, but also cyber. To, as time went by, uh, they became more involved in uh, cyber protection. And uh, for uh, sensitive targets in Israel, not all targets. We have also a civilian uh, organizations that takes care of uh, cyber protection uh, for other uh, targets, but for the most sensitive targets, uh, Shabak is, uh, I say, is responsible. And they have many other, and they also collect information in order to be able to to perform their tasks. They have to collect information, especially on terrorism. Shabak is in Hebrew Shin Bet Kaf, General 
service of uh, security. Uh, so they are relatively strong in collect, collecting information regarding the Palestinian threat. That's the way we function, more or less, in a, in a very small nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> How does all of this intelligence come together? So you mentioned the ODNI and then formerly the CIA. They were responsible for all source, all agency, bringing all of the intelligence together for an intelligence uh, assessment or estimate or for the president's daily brief. Uh, so you said that part of your role and part of the role of a man would be to bring all of that together. Is that correct? Yes, that's part of our role. Uh, but in Israel, we, we don't have the director of national intelligence. There's no such uh, organization, no such position. Each of the intelligence organizations prepare the intelligence they need for their own operations and share some of this uh, information they, that they produce in order to have the general view uh, with the uh, outside consumers, like the Prime Minister, Minister of Defense, and so forth. The military and defense intelligence is uh, subordinated to the chief of staff, who is subordinated to the Minister of Defense, who is subordinated to the Prime Minister. So the military and defense uh, intelligence gets to the prime minister, in many cases directly, but allegedly through this chain of command. Whereas the Mossad and the Shabak, and the Shin Bet, as you call them, uh, they are directly subordinated to the prime minister. So they don't, it's not that they don't uh, tell the minister of defense what they're doing. They do, but they are not subordinated to him. Uh, they don't, are not subordinated to the chief of staff. They can go straight to the prime minister. That's, uh, and from time to time, the heads of these three organizations sit together. But it's not like the DNI that there is a, uh, an organization that uh, have representatives from the different, you have 18 or 17 uh, agencies, we just have three. From time to time, when there is a necessity for that, the heads of these organizations sit together in an organization, not organization, a meeting called the Committee of the Heads of the Services. In Hebrew, it's called Varash. And they may discuss issues that uh, relate to, to the three organizations. There are only three things that really belong to all of them, and uh, they care for them together. One is commemoration of the fallen, the Israeli Intelligence Community Commemoration and Heritage Center. And uh, that's one thing they do together. They, are, they do have a course, one course, that's called inter-agency course, where people from already in the rank of colonel or uh, lieutenant colonel and uh, their equivalent in the Mossad and Shabak will sit together and study issues that relate to how it's better to do, best to do intelligence. People from the three organizations that deal with a certain issue sit together and study and uh, learn this specific issue. Sometimes it's more general. And we have this organization that I'm heading <laughs> that's called the Institute for the Research of the Methodology of Intelligence uh, that is uh, serving all three organizations and tries to uh, develop knowledge that is relevant for all of them about how to do intelligence, how to better do intelligence. Wow, that's really fascinating. And could you give our listeners a couple of examples of the 
things that you were involved in during your time as the head of the research division. So maybe talk about the Iraq war and the effect that that had, or maybe the, the Second Intifada. And well, I'll tell you a story from the Second Intifada, okay, That's, uh, that I was involved in. Uh, the Second Intifada was an, uh, an effort by the Palestinians to force Israel to accept their terms of uh, moving towards uh, settling the dispute between us and the Palestinians, terms that uh, were totally unacceptable for Israel. We were after an agreement, a political agreement with uh, the Palestinians back in 1993, called the Oslo Agreement that portrayed some way through which negotiations uh, would lead to some permanent uh, agreement, meetings that were held in July 2000 uh, in, in the United States, uh, hosted by President Clinton at the time, uh, Camp David. And uh, after they failed, the Palestinians started a war of terror against Israel back in uh, the, uh, the last day of September 2000. I was, by the way, at the time, I was the chief intelligence officer of our central command, which is responsible for the areas that be, uh, in which the, the war started, took place. And I said, before the war, this war is going to take six years. I was a little bit pessimistic, it took five. In reality, it took seven. It, it reached, uh, the solution was reached on, on, on the seventh year. Anyhow, then I became, in 2001, I uh, came to the, to the headquarters to take the position of the head of the research division. Palestinians, one of the things they were trying to do was to cause Israel such damage that it would be beyond what the Israelis can sustain, and that would force the Israelis to give up and give them everything they wanted. And uh, they tried suicide bombing, you know, the way we were exposed to many suicide bombings. Uh, they tried shooting uh, against uh, Israelis that were driving on the main roads. Uh, they tried all kinds of tricks. It was painful. We lost 1,000 people, but it was not painful enough for us to give up uh, our conditions. One of the things they were trying to do was to bring weapons from, uh, from Iran that would break, the, that would be game changers. Uh, today, you know, Israel has the Iron Dome and we, can, we know how to handle uh, medium and short-range uh, rockets quite well and uh, we intercept something like 95% of them. But at the time, we didn't have the, that uh, option. So the Palestinians thought that if they would bring in some rockets, uh, long or medium-range rockets, especially from Iran, this is going to be a game-changer and will force Israel to accept their conditions. The Palestinians, together with Hezbollah and with the Iranians, began to think about a way to bring those weapons to Israel. We were supposed to be able to say... When is this weapon, what, what's, what's going on here, first of all? <laughs> it was not totally clear. We had, uh, out of this, uh, let's say, 100 uh, particles of, uh, of the puzzle uh, pieces, we, we had like seven. Uh, <laughs> you didn't know what's going on. But we knew that they were trying to uh, get some weapons. That's what we knew, because we managed to foil some previous attempts. So we knew that they were doing that. And we knew who were the people who were leading this effort because the Palestinians had something called the naval police, uh, naval unit that uh, was doing this issue. So we were following them and we saw that they're doing all kinds of activities. We didn't know what's going on. So the intelligence, a young lady, a young officer, lady officer, 
came up with a wonderful idea that, look, they speak about a certain sheep called Karim, but uh, they bought a sheep called Rim. So maybe Rim is Karim, Karim A. This how this uh, story of Karim A started. We located the, the sheep and the chief of staff didn't want to go to, to the sea. We managed to locate the ship, follow it. We are preparing an operation to uh, take, it, uh, take control of the ship. Some unbelievable operation from an operational point of view, beyond our capabilities. Something unbelievable, really. But the chief of staff was not ready to, uh, to go, and uh, his name was General Mofaz. He said, I'm not going before I'm 100% sure that there are weapons on this ship. I don't want to be blamed of uh, piracy. Tell me that you are 100% sure that uh, there are weapons on this ship. And I wasn't 100% sure. Every morning he would ask me, Cooper, that's my nickname, Cooper, how sure are you? <laughs> and I would say, 85%. Said, Not good enough. <laughs> one, one day, yeah, there was a reason why I said 100%. And uh, there was a piece of information coming in that made me realize that I can be courageous enough to say 100%. I said 100%. We went to the sea and took over the ship. So we are flying, the chief of staff, the, the head of the Air Force and the, the, the commander of the Air Force and commander of the Navy and myself, we are flying over the ship, looking uh, at the units uh, taking over the ship and uh, taking control of the ship. It was very impressive. After like 10 minutes... The uh, chief of staff asked the commander on the on the ship, "So, <laughs> are there weapons? <laughs> Have you found anything?" <laughs> so he says, "Look, we we are looking, we are searching, but uh, all that we found until now is toys, a lot of toys." So the chief of staff, I was I was sitting just behind the chief of staff and, and in this small airplane. So he turns back to me and says, "Cooper, you said one hundred percent." Said, tell him to keep looking. <laughs> <laughs> you were worried you were going to get thrown out of the aircraft. Uh, exactly. <laughs> you know, after ten more minutes, he comes back. He said, yeah. "There are there's a lot, many bags of rice here." The chief staff turns back and says to me, "You said not only that you are one hundred percent. You said this is going to be fifty tons hammer on the head of Arafat. We, we should be able to prove what is all up to." And look what's happening now. You you're going back through the through this window. <laughs> <He said to me. laughs> Ten more minutes, they found eighty canisters, uh, submersible canisters, that were carrying a lot of weapons, including rockets and uh, unbelievable stuff given by the Iranians to the Palestinians, and that was supposed to be brought to to Gaza. And uh, so he asked the, the guy, why did why did it take so long for you to find it? I said, we went to the uh, captain and we asked him, where are the weapons? And he said, why don't you ask? Took us to Wow. <laughs> and can I ask what the piece of evidence was that made you 100% sure? Can you disclose that? You can ask, that? but I cannot answer. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so, okay, well, that's that dealt with. <laughs> The term intifada means shaking off in Arabic. In the context of the Arab-Israeli conflict, it conveys the desire of the Palestinians to shake off the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip to form their own independent state. The West Bank refers to the landlocked territory 
on the west bank of the River Jordan that is home to roughly 3 million people. The Gaza Strip refers to a tract of land with 40 kilometres of Mediterranean coastline and a population of approximately 2 million people. The territories are not physically connected, but are seen as politically connected for any two-state solution. That is two states side by side, an Israeli state and a Palestinian state. The first Intifada was a spontaneous uprising that began in 1987 after an Israeli military truck collided with Palestinian cars, killing four occupants, the Israelis stating it was an accident, the Palestinians' intentional retaliation for the stabbing of Israeli two days earlier. It lasted until 1993 and was a catalyst for the peace process that culminated in the Oslo Accords that Yossi mentions in this episode. This was brokered by President Clinton. The Second Intifada began in 2000 after Israeli opposition leader Ariel Sharon visited the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the holiest site in Judaism, also known as Haram Es-Sharif, the third holiest site in Islam. The Intifada lasted until 2005. There has been much speculation in the news that a third Intifada is on the way. If it does happen, at least now you know what it is. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. And tell us a little bit more about the Iraq War. I find this one really, really interesting. So the Iraq War happens in 2003. And this is quite interesting as well because later on, out of the Iraq War, we have knockover effects into Syria, Islamic State, uh, across the region. So help us understand what it was like for you um, living through that time. Well, there were several points uh, that relate to the Iraq war. First of all, there was a question of whether they have strategic weapons still available to them. We told the Americans uh, in advance, back in October 2002, that all these weapons were taken out of Iraq and sent to Syria. That it's going to be extremely difficult to find anything in Iraq, because the, until October 2002, the Iraqis, according to our assessment, still had some residual capabilities of strategic weapons, including chemical weapons especially. Because in October 2002, the international community re- resumed its uh, searches for uh, unconventional weapons in, uh, in Iraq, the Iraqis, just before that uh, started, took a big uh, convoy and sent all the weapons to Syria. And we told everybody, this is what happened. You may want to search for whatever you like. And maybe there's still very little left behind. But the logic of Saddam Hussein was 
that he is not going to be caught with his hand in the cookie jar. So uh, if, since he was saying, I have nothing, he was uh, convinced that if, if he can prove that he has nothing by sending everything he has to uh, uh, to Syria, just like he did in, in the First World uh, Iraq War when he sent his air force to, uh, to Iran uh, to save it. This time he was thought he was going to save it by sending it to Syria. And, uh, and the Americans blamed themselves again and again for not finding uh, the weapons while we told them that this is the case back in October. And we even made it public. You know, we published this information, not only uh, told uh, through cooperation uh, of intelligence units, but uh, but also we made public that the, the weapons were sent out. This didn't help. Uh, the Americans, that's one of the problems of uh, international cooperation in intelligence. People don't take the information brought by another organization as 100% right. Uh, they are very suspicious. So this was one problem. The other problem was what's going to happen in Iraq after the invasion? And my terminology at the time was that uh, we have to differentiate between the morning, of course, everybody was talking, what's going to happen in the day after? Uh, that was the terminology used at the time. Uh, so I, I said, we have to be modest and uh, humble. We can have some assessment about what's going to happen in the morning after. In the morning after, you'll, it's not going to be a big issue to, to win a war against the Iraqi army. For, for the coalition. It's, uh, it's going to be relatively easy. But uh, we have big doubts about what's going to happen in the midday after. It's going to be more complicated because the Iranians are going to get involved and the, uh, the Shiites that are going to be freed are going to be happy, but, uh, but at the same time, you, uh, they are under a lot of Iranian uh, influence and the... Uh, and the Sunnis are going to be very frustrated, and uh, a lot of things can happen by by lunchtime. And what's going to happen in the evening? It's uh, it's really beyond what one person can can really assess because it depends on how, how we move from uh, from midday towards the the afternoon. It's, uh, a lot of things are going to impact the situation, and you have to study in advance all the all these uh, options. What are the different options that can emerge in Iraq? in the afternoon uh, before you, you reach to the end of the day. It was not done well enough, um, not including by us. This was not done well enough because the, this kind of assessment is different totally from trying to assess whether they have weapons or uh, mass destruction of no, or not. This is one a question that uh, we look at as a, as a secret. Okay. Maybe they may have, they may have not. We have to find out. Okay, but there is, but there isn't an, an answer to this question. They either have or they have not. Whereas uh, finding the answer to the question, what's going to happen in the afternoon after, is is affected by so many elements that are going to to happen that are not happening at this time, that are not present at this time. It's not a, a secret. It's a mystery. It's very difficult to to assess. We can, we can have some opinion about it. We should have some opinion as intelligence uh, to say something about it that is substantial. But we have to be very modest and humble about uh, the way we present it and make sure that we are not that sure about the outcome. And anyhow, we thought at the time that the culprit that should be taken care of after 9-11 is not the Iraqis. I think a good example of what you were discussing there about the afternoon and the morning after as 
just the last few years. No one saw the pandemic coming and then the effects the pandemic would have on the global economy and then the effects of uh, Russia invading Ukraine and the lockdown in China and the protests. Like, the future is so open-ended and unseeable in many ways, which doesn't mean that you just pretend it doesn't exist, but like you say, any view that you have, even if it's based on every piece of data in the world, is always going to be based on assumptions that may or may not hold going into the future. Those assumptions may change or they may be false assumptions, but we don't know until we go into the future. Mentioning the, the situation in, in Ukraine, right? The question of whether uh, the Russians are going to invade or not was sort of, uh, of a secret problem because there was a decision by the Russians and you have to know what was the decision. And if their decision is to invade, they are going to invade. And that's what uh, the Americans and the Brits uh, were excelling in, in giving the right solution to this question of the secret. But what's going to happen once they invade? This is something that is uh, difficult to assess. I wrote a piece on, uh, on February 27th, three days after the, the attack, saying Zelensky won. Uh, because I thought that the main issue here is the war about the narrative. And he won the, nar the narrative war on, on day three. And I explained that uh, even from a military point of view, it's not totally clear what's going to happen. Yes, the Russians have much, much bigger capabilities, but the Ukrainians have the benefit of the defender. The defender is always uh, in a much better shape in any confrontation of this kind. I was not sure that this was going to be enough, but I said, anyhow, the narrative war was won by, by Zelensky because he managed to place himself as the collective victim. And once you are the collective victim, it's very difficult to take you away from there. And, uh, and the Russians wanted to place themselves in the, the collective victim. They spoke about Nazis and, uh, and all these issues in order to, to convince people to look at them as the collective victim. And, and they really considered themselves as victims according to their narrative. But their narrative didn't become the prevailing narrative. The prevailing narrative became right away the Ukrainian narrative. And that's uh, something that's very important to understand. I put aside all the, the issues of uh, the misjudgment of what the big uh, capabilities of the Russians really mean militarily. Uh, because this is another issue, and I know that there is a committee in the, in the United States looking at this matter, so I don't want to interfere with their activity. Absolutely. And I guess the question I have is, why do you think that the Americans and the Brits didn't believe you when you said, listen, all of the weapons of mass destruction are not in Iraq anymore? Uh, I know you mentioned this residual mistrust, but why do you think the Americans went ahead? Or is that really more about politics than intelligence? I don't know. I, I, it's very difficult for me to judge. But I can tell you that uh, I don't know about the political aspect of it, but uh, from the point of view of uh, trust between intelligence communities, it's always a very problematic issue. Because if you, if you are not involved directly in the collection, and uh, this information at the time was based on very sensitive sources, you cannot trust that the source of the other side. And, and maybe, maybe the Israelis have... have uh, hidden agenda here. They want to make sure that we don't attack Iraq, or I don't know, why wouldn't we? What, what, <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, but it's, uh, the, the, you always say to yourself, what is the hidden agenda of the other side who tells you, who gives me this information? 
Unless it's a concrete information that says, look, there is a terrorist going to hit you tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, uh, then you take it seriously. But uh, we had plenty of cases in which information that was given to our partners on issues that are more complicated than just uh, early warning and terror was treated with uh, too many grains of salt. It's an ongoing problem. I want to discuss your time as the Assistant Defense Attaché for Intelligence in Washington, D.C., which I find quite interesting. But before we got on there, when you were the head of uh, the Research Division, you mentioned the digital revolution earlier, and I just wondered if were you involved in any way with the Cyber Warfare Branch 8200 or the Secret Technology Unit Unit 81 or even the... Uh, Sayeret Matkal, the general staff pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know about that one mainly from the Entebbe raid and Yossi Netanyahu and so forth. But I think our listeners will be quite interested in some of those kind of niche specialist units. You know, A200 is a cyber unit, but the world has changed because of cyber. The world has changed. So in, in intelligence on top of providing information that is necessary for those who operate uh, all kinds of weapons, is also operating weapons by itself. And, uh, and more and more, uh, and more and more so. So it's uh, the effort of, uh, of the intelligence uh, as an operator became more and more prominent in the identity of the intelligence. It's true for Mossad and Shabak because... Not only they collect information, they also take action in order to thwart uh, the, the threats and the dangers that they uh, see, warn about. Uh, but it's also true of, uh, of the military intelligence that uh, is responsible in Israel for uh, cyber activities in some areas. Yes, it, it has to be able to, to perform on the cyber, both for protection and occasionally for other purposes as well. That's a relatively new development. Not that new, but uh, let's say 10, 10 years more or less. Th this is relatively new. And uh, the, the entire context in which intelligence is, is operated has changed. In the past, much more was uh, dependent on uh, human intelligence. Today, it's less necessary. It's still very important, but it's less necessary. You can get what you want from people without them knowing that they are uh, helping you. Uh, the, the entire context has changed. That's uh, something that we have to remember. Yes, uh, Sayyid Matkal is, uh, is amazing and uh, they're very courageous and carry out attacks, uh, carry out sorry, operations uh, here and there. Uh, very impressive. Uh, the, the role of the research division is to prioritize what needs to be done together with the director of military intelligence, to help the director of military intelligence to reach a decision, an educated decision, about how to use this asset, because we don't have enough of this asset. So once you decide to use it for a certain purpose, you're not going to use it for a different purpose. That's where the analysis division comes in uh, on that matter. Let's shift on to some of the other things that you've done so uh, earlier in your career, you were the Assistant Defense Attaché for Intelligence in Washington. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, if my timing is right, you were here before the International Spy Museum opened, but 
anytime if you come back to Washington, let me know and we'll give you a tour or get you some comp tickets. Uh, but tell us about your time. What did that role involve and what was your time like here in Washington? I was in Washington between 92 and 94. This was, the, by the way, the time when uh, the peace agreements was the, you know, the intended peace agreement with the Palestinians were, were uh, reached uh, in 93, September 93. I was on the loan, thousand loan of the White House uh, when Arafat and uh, Rabin and Paris uh, signed the uh, Oslo Accord. It was this uh, strange feeling of, you could hear the, the wings of history, but you know what? Uh, that same day, I went to uh, speak at uh, George Washington University. And I said, signing an agreement is nice. The, the test is going to be in the, in the implementation. If Arafat really wants to reach peace, we are there to, to do that. If he doesn't, uh, this is not going to work. Uh, strangely enough, by the way, uh, I was seconded by uh, an Egyptian speaker at the same uh, event who so <laughs> criticized Arafat for not being totally, fully heartedly supporting the progress towards peace. And what happened later that was, was that we realized that this was the case. But when I was in Washington, my main task was to improve the relationship between the Israeli and the American uh, intelligence communities. We signed all kinds of agreements that gave the context according to which uh, this cooperation was uh, was done. This was uh, extremely important because it's really important for both sides to know what to expect. There's always an uh, the possibility of giving more than what is inside the agreement, but uh, you expect your partner to at least give you what is, uh, and, and you will give him what you are supposed to give according to the agreement. And uh, this was very important. We had an unbelievable cooperation with the American uh, intelligence community. Uh, really amazing. This was my job to make sure that there was a common understanding of the challenges we were facing. And uh, remind you that, for example, in 93, we had the first attempt against the uh, uh, World Trade Center, uh, by Omar Abdul Rahman, the, the beginnings of this new challenge were appearing. This was a period where the American intelligence was looking to, was going through an identity crisis after the fall of the Soviet Union. What What is going to be the next uh, challenge of the American uh, intelligence? And uh, we were telling them, and they reached the decision also by themselves, that uh, this Islamic terrorism is, is the, the threat they should uh, focus on. And so is the Iranian radicalism that was also becoming more and more a threat. And we, we were facing it in Lebanon. So main issues, these were the main issues that we cooperated. Somehow, there was some more stuff, but I, <laughs> even today I cannot go into, into this detail. <laughs> okay. So why is this tract of land between the eastern Mediterranean and the Jordan River, considered holy by Jews, Muslims and Christians, the subject of ongoing conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Let's break that down through 12 statements of fact. 1. The Holy Land has been considered holy for millennia. 2. The Roman Empire and its successor, the Christian Byzantine Empire, were the major force in the region from 63 BCE to 638. 
638, Jerusalem fell to Caliph Omar, ushering in over 1,200 years of rule by a variety of Muslim empires. This was only punctuated by almost a century of crusader rule from 1099 until Saladin recaptured the city in 1187. 4. Muslim rule ended in 1917 with the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, at the end of World War I and the beginning of the British Mandate, which would last until 1948. 5. In 1917, the British issued the Balfour Declaration in support of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. 6. Nations successively replaced empires as the major form of political organisation in the 19th and 20th centuries. 7. The Jewish diaspora looked to the lands from which they had been expelled millennia previously as a potential nation or home for the Jewish people. This was also influenced by increasing anti-Semitism, violence and pogroms, Russian for wreak havoc in Europe. Later on, it would also be influenced by the Holocaust. 8. This national revival movement became known as Zionism and led to successive waves of immigration to the Holy Land, which at the end of the 19th century had held less than 5% of the world's Jewish population. 9. In 1948, Israel declared its independence after a period of Jewish-Muslim unrest prompted by the coming end of the British Mandate. This led to a war between Israel and five Arab states and huge population transfers. As Palestinians left Israel for surrounding Arab states and Jews in surrounding Arab states left for Israel. 10. 1967 saw the Six-Day War between Israel and Egypt, Jordan and Syria. 1973 saw the Yom Kippur War between Israel and Egypt and Syria. 11. At the heart of the conflict are questions of territory, the status of the holy city of Jerusalem and the right of the displaced peoples and refugees to return to their ancestral homes. 12. In short, it is two national self-determination movements clashing. Israeli historian Benny Morris has also highlighted the role of what he calls righteous victimhood. At the macro level, I believe that in the future, it will be seen as the product of a shift in the international system from empires to nation-states as the major form of political, social and cultural organisation. now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. I think that's such a fascinating job uh, and it's such a fascinating time period. So I was also just thinking, like, your, your career is so rich, we don't have time to go into all of it, but it struck me as being quite interesting that, if I'm correct, you were... Uh, an infantryman and then you were an artillery officer 
And then a little later on in the 80s, you move into intelligence. So I just wondered if you could tell us about that evolution. Tell us a little bit more about how you went from infantry to artillery to intelligence. And are you glad you made the shift? (laughs) This was all by hasard, by by, by chance. uh, Okay. (laughs) I studied when my time to to be conscript came. I asked to go to the university and study in Arabic language and Arabic culture and economics. That's what I was going to study because my father was an accountant. So I said, I'll I'll study economics as well just to make sure that I have something to earn a living from. (laughs) From Arabic, you're not going to become able to to feed your uh, family. So uh, that was what I did. But then... Uh, and uh, I was approved to to study that. Probably I was supposed to reach the intelligence, but what happened was that uh, there's uh, training in uh, in between the years when you are in the, it's like ROTC. On the second year of training, uh, we had the, the outbreak of the second of the Yom Kippur War. I was a soldier in the command course, and uh, instead of going back to university. I remained an infantry soldier for for a year, participated in the wars as an infantry soldier, and uh, remained in the, in the military for a full year uh, as a commander of uh, commander of a course and so on, so Teacher, instructor, as a course in a course, and, uh, and then because in the war so many intelli- uh, artillery officers uh, lost their lives, there was a demand for artillery officers, so they told me. Very nice that you studied in the university, but uh, we need artillery officers. So, uh, so I went to uh, an artillery officer uh, course. After the course, the intelligence branch said, but this guy studied Arabic. So <laughs> what is the logic of turning him into uh, an artillery officer? It makes no sense. Bring, us, bring him back to us. What happened was that uh, they managed to convince the artillery force to <laughs> bring me back to, to intelligence. I am an artillery officer, uh, so whenever somebody in the intelligence corps uh, needed somebody to participate in a military course and to represent the, the intelligence in the military course, I said, Cooper, <laughs> you go. <laughs> a real military career uh, parallel to my intelligence career which was extremely important because when I reached the, uh, the level of uh, intelligence officer of, uh, of Central Command, when I, when I became the intelligence officer of, of, the, of the headquarters as head of research in the division, the fact that I, I knew what, what we were talking about. And you retired as a brigadier general, that's correct? Yes. Yeah, Wow. And tell us about some of the things that you've been up to uh, after you left the military. So you mentioned some of the things that you've been doing. So maybe just briefly about the Institute for the Research of the Methodology of Intelligence. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Do you look at historical case studies that Israel has been involved in? Do you look at American intelligence, British intelligence, other intelligence agencies? Help us understand that because this methodology is very interesting. Well, first of all, I did all kinds of things before I uh, reached the Institute for Research and Methodology. I was for uh, three years, more or less, in, in, in Colombia as a consultant. Uh, I think we helped them. We, have, we were on a mission there to help them 
improve their intelligence and, uh, and the way they bet, they fought against terror and, and drugs. I think we did a very good job uh, because beforehand, before we came there, they were unable to, to close the circle on uh, any of these uh, key figures of the FARC and, uh, and the drug uh, cartels, and uh, with the exception of Escobar. Uh, Pablo Escobar, but uh, I think with our with our help, we didn't deal with the material itself. We just helped them restructure and uh, rethink about about their problem. They let they came, they reached by their own merit, uh, unbelievable achievements that uh, really should be praised. It was a wonderful breakthrough for for Colombia that I did for, for a couple of years, uh, very impressive, uh, interesting experience. Then I was the head of the, re, of the, of the, of the director general of the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, which was like more or less being the head of the research division without, without the 700 people that I had <laughs> back then. <laughs> uh, but uh, I dealt with the same issues. And then I left because I got sick of the bureaucracy of the government, uh, which is, can kill anybody. And uh, I went to the uh, private sector, but I didn't reach the private sector. I came back to the uh, public uh, or the NGO sector. And uh, I established a couple of companies for the benefit of the public, then uh, joined the research uh, center in, in Jerusalem, to deal with the situation in the Middle East and so on and so forth. And finally, I joined the, and I helped found, actually, I didn't join it, I helped found uh, the Institute for the Research of the Methodology of Intelligence. And the idea of the, of the Institute is to help the Israeli intelligence community form its opinion and its thoughts about challenges that it faces. Because most people, when they are doing their job, they are so uh, carried away with the ongoing uh, current uh, missions. They, they develop all kinds of ideas about how to do their job better, but they don't have time to write it and to really think about it in a, in a really thorough manner. So we help people inside the intelligence to think more thoroughly and more systematically about uh, problems they, they face. That's one uh, issue. It's very helpful for, for people who write at us. So it helps them think about the problems they have. Secondly, we challenge them. We say, look, why won't you think about this option, about that option? And many of the things we, we write and they help them think about, they didn't even think that they should think about them, but we tell them it's a good idea to think about it. They take from time to time and say, well, not only that we thought about it, maybe we should implement it. And we have some uh, some achievements in this respect of uh, cases in which the intelligence community took ideas that were developed in the in the institute and implemented them in the context of uh, jointness in intelligence, in the context of uh, confronting uh, the challenges of uh, big data. You, you are invited to read our stuff on, on our website, the Institute of the Research and Authority of Intelligence. And third, we want to cater to them information that is out there and they, are, they don't have time to read. It's, uh, they're so busy. Uh, so we cater to them uh, this kind of information, information that's coming from the academia, information that's coming from uh, foreign uh, intelligence communities, information that's coming from uh, 
private, uh, the business sector that is also developing all kinds of capabilities and, uh, that are relevant for intelligence. And uh, we also hold all kinds of uh, seminars and, and issues that uh, are important for the intelligence community. It's very helpful. Recently, we are uh, embarking on a new project of academization. Strangely enough, Israel has a very impressive intelligence community, but it has no uh, structured uh, studies of intelligence in the academia, something that you find all over the United States and, uh, and Europe. So we are now in the midst of uh, an effort to develop uh, academization in the uh, Israeli academic uh, sphere. We hope that by next year we shall be able to start uh, providing lessons and uh, courses and intelligence. We have some, some courses here and there already. We are going to integrate them into our system. And we get a lot of help from uh, the people who deal with this matter around the world, organizations like International Association for Intelligence Education, IAFI. They help us a lot on and, and that matter, and other groups around the world uh, are there to, to assist us in, in this huge effort. And we believe that uh, this is going to be very contributing for professionalizing intelligence in Israel. Wow, you've had quite the life in Israeli intelligence. Where, where are you coming to us from now, Yossi? Are you in Jerusalem? No, small town outside of uh, Tel Aviv, yes. Tel Aviv. Uh, I've, I visited Israel in 2008 and I became obsessed with shakshuka. I've been perfecting my recipe ever since. <laughs> I hope you're doing it well. Put I'm, a lot I'm of trying, uh, hot trying. stuff in it. Uh, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thanks ever so much for your time, Yossi. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Same here, Andrew. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast.spymuseum.org or on Twitter at intlspycast. Coming up in next week's show. Secrets Revealed. Highlights from the Grant Verstanding Collection. Private collections usually stay private, especially when they're related to espionage and intelligence. These items are on public display together for the first time here at the International Spy Museum. This is your chance to steal a look and hear spy curators discuss artifacts like the Neptune monograph, circa 1944, a hand-drawn sketch by Matahari herself, and even a rectal concealment kit. Join us next week to find out more. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond. My podcast content partner is Aaron Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show are Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Joe Zhu, Emily Coletta, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Hey, listeners. 
We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.